welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on this episode, we focus on the issue of foreign aid. With approximately 50 billion American taxpayer dollars sent overseas each year to help people in need, the question is, does foreign aid really work? Or is the traditional government-funded model flawed, leading to waste and negative unintended consequences? Well, Matt Warner is here with us today to answer these questions and provide insights on what is the best way to help people in poverty. Matt Warner is the author of a new book called Poverty and Freedom, Case Studies on Global Economic Development. And Matt is also the president of the Atlas Network, a nonprofit organization connecting a global network of more than 475 free market organizations in over 90 countries. Matt Wright speaks and consults internationally on the topics of economics and institution building, and his work has appeared in Forbes, Harvard's Education Next, Real Clear Politics, Washington Times, among others. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. And where I want to start is just this issue of foreign aid. I think so often as Americans, we are not fully aware of how much money is sent overseas, what it is sent for. Give us a little breakdown to start off with of the background of how Americans send foreign aid and the purpose of it. Sure. So historically, foreign aid has been something that the Marshall Plan after World War II Uh, where uh, we were looking at how to rebuild uh, countries around the world and establish uh, more stability. Um, That became more formalized in the early 60s with legislation, uh, major legislation out of Congress, where we started to institutionalize in our country a foreign aid model and a set of, of institutions to advance foreign aid. Fast forward to today, and uh, most of our foreign aid is handled through the uh, USAID, the, uh, the the agency in charge of it, but not exclusively. There's actually um, up to 20 different entities among the federal government that have some type of, of, of foreign aid apparatus. And for the most part, foreign aid is used in about four buckets. It's uh, long-term development, uh, attacking major issues like HIV, AIDS, etc., uh, humanitarian disaster relief, that's a, a, bit, um, a sizable piece, um, some institutional and political stability support, and then about a third of it is, is, is military support. And so that's um, going to, again, try to uh, create stability around the world. And of course, when uh, I think Americans think about foreign aid, they they think about, you know, uh, helping the, uh, the, the desperately poor around the world and trying to uh, make the world a better place. And the interesting thing that uh, we've seen in the last couple of decades is a really uh, strong effort to start to ask tough questions about the efficacy of foreign aid and whether it's actually making a difference. And I think one of the things that we can point out is that Americans are very generous. I think if Americans thought that this money was going to a, something really beneficial to people overseas, especially in helping them get out of poverty, we would say that we should continue doing this. So it's not the generosity that's being questioned. It's, as you said, is this working? And so break it down for us. I know your book, um, Poverty and Freedom, it deals with case studies on what can work. But let's start with why foreign aid often doesn't work, even if it has good intentions behind it? Well, I think we've all seen recently, whether you're um, um, 
paying attention to the headlines related to Ukraine with uh, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump being questioned uh, in terms of of how they've used foreign aid to influence other countries for, for different ends, uh, there is a very natural inclination for foreign aid to be politicized, and and often intentionally so. I mean, it, it's seen as, um, uh, on the one hand, something that we're doing to make the world a better place. On the other hand, from a um, holding government accountable from the taxpayer's point of view, uh, what is this doing to advance our national interest? So at the crosshairs of these two things, um, you end up with um, a, uh, a set of objectives that may or may not at the end of the day actually match needs on the ground in countries. And um, I'll point to some examples real quick the, uh, of, of what hasn't worked. Um, one of the more celebrated traditional approaches that um, kind of backfired was a $300 million investment under Jeffrey Sachs to um, attack all the symptoms of poverty at once. This was his theory that there's this uh, poverty trap that uh, people in poor places are stuck uh, within. And if you start to do better in one way, too many other things hold you back. After $300 million in 10 years, uh, the first independent evaluation of his approach done by um, uh, uh, Britain's uh, um, Department of Aid uh, uh, said that not only did they find no evidence that anybody escaped poverty long term, but that many of the good things that did happen could have been done much, much cheaper. And so this gets at the heart of why is it that if we have money, resources and technical knowledge, that's still not enough to go and help people escape poverty. And that gets to something fundamental about the the nature of economic development, which is that it is something that is uh, complex, iterative, and is a function of individual choices uh, in different places around the world. Well, I know that you have coined the term, it's the outsider's dilemma, which is really the crux of why there it, it just doesn't work. Even when you have good intentions, the aid that we send doesn't lead to the outcome that we're hoping for. So what is this outsider's dilemma and why do you think this is the crux as to why foreign aid doesn't lead to the, the good work that we hope it will? Well, I mean, I think many of us can relate to the idea that maybe there's someone in our life or in our family that we want to see them do better in life and uh but uh you know try as we might we can't uh control them and and uh, make decisions for them and the fact is uh even if we could we probably wouldn't get it right um this gets to the fundamental issue of why individual freedom is so important it isn't just about uh, human dignity which is super important that we uh, acknowledge that nobody should be able to have power over someone else but also that the choices that individuals make every day uh, represent their own sense of their trade-offs in local conditions. So the outsider's dilemma says uh, uh, wanting to help is good, um, but interfering in someone else's life, um, if, you, if you really aren't in a proper place to be making decisions on their behalf, can actually do more harm than good. And I'll point to... Um, if, if, if listeners are interested in reading more about this, there's uh, books by um, uh, Angus Deaton, The Great Escape, the, um, also uh, Chris Coyne, uh, doing, uh, doing More Harm Than, than Good. Um, there is um, 
a real question that not only is foreign aid often ineffective, but often um, you it starts to create moral questions of whether we've actually made places worse off or made it even harder for them to get to where they need to go. And, and so of course, there's this, there's oh. there's your book as well. So the people can read this uh, about this in your book, Poverty and Freedom. And I know while you deal with case studies of what can work, you've also delved into what hasn't worked. You've even given some very clear examples. What are some of those examples of ways that, that we tried to help and it actually led to more harm than good? Uh, well, I mean, you can look actually across both humanitarian and economic development. Uh, for example, coming in and telling um, vil- villagers in Uganda uh, to switch from growing uh, bananas to growing corn because it'll get higher crop yields. And um, you, you give them money to do that. They're, they trust you. They Sounds good to them. They switch their crops to corn. And indeed, they do have higher crop yields. But there's no market for corn and there's there's nowhere to get it uh, 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 to transport it for sale. And so it ends up rotting and attracting a rat infestation in in the local village. Um, and so you end up with resentment uh, on, on the part of, of the villagers who initially thought that you were there to help. Um, and obviously, nobody wants to see those kinds of things happen. Um, but even the smartest people with uh, big, big pocketbooks um, don't understand that economies develop because individuals make choices and they face trade-offs that they understand better than anybody else. And what they really need is more freedom. So in the book, I talk about um, examples of local think tanks who have local knowledge, who aren't outsiders, who are working for systemic change that removes barriers for individuals to be able to make more choices. Um, And there are some uh, great examples from um, countries all over the world where you're seeing think tanks achieve uh, uh, these these reforms, uh, and, and the payoffs start showing up immediately. And I know that you had a conference last last month, and you brought in some of these these leaders from these organizations across the world. You also have some great videos featuring some of these case studies on your website, atlasnetwork.org. But give us an example of one of the case studies you highlighted in the book on how when it was when the initiative was locally led, it led to much better outcomes than foreign aid could ever lead to. You bet. So uh, as a grant maker at Atlas Network, we have standards that that our grantees need to meet, but we don't uh, prescribe the content or the substance or the strategy of what our grantees are trying to do. So a partner of ours in Burundi, a a country in Africa that um, uh, scores very low on on international indices of freedom and and ease of doing business by the World Bank, etc., uh, it's a tough place um, uh, to uh, to thrive, a fairly authoritarian government. Uh, we have a, a, a modest think tank partner there who is actually uh, just very inspirational and enterprising, and they do a lot with a little. And they came to us with a set of, of, of plans that they wanted to advance to uh, uh, change the rhetoric in the country to say, Let's stop holding ourselves back and let's believe in ourselves as, uh, you know, modest entrepreneurs. And here are the things that that the government can change in order to help support our country becoming more prosperous. And that was a message that resonated with both government and and with people. And one of the outcomes of that is that they lowered the cost to register a business formally. Um, It had previously been pretty cost uh, prohibitive, about 78 U.S. dollars 
to to register your business formally. This is in a country with a $300 GDP per capita. And uh, they they dropped that down to 22 U.S. dollars, and they immediately saw within a year a 49% increase in formal registrations of businesses. Let me explain one person's story of, of the difference that this made. There's a gentleman named Papa Coriander, or that's how he's known locally, because he creates products out of coriander, drinks and uh, other foodstuffs. And, um, and he had a business for, for years, extremely modest, barely you know, getting by, where he would uh, create products out of coriander. And in fact, because he was in the informal sector and hadn't re- registered as a legal business because it was too cost prohibitive, um, he, he had no legal protection and he had been jailed several times. Uh, this happens often a, a, around the world. If, if you're not a legal business, then police can just take all of, of your inventory and take your cash and you have no recourse. Uh, once he uh, was able to become a formal business and join the, the, the legal sector, not only do you have protections, but that allows you to grow and to start to establish yourself. And within one year after this change and him registering, he now has 100 employees. He went from two to 100. That's explosive growth and, and really has huge ripple effects in a country like, like Burundi. And I think a natural question that people would have is, is first of all, how do you find these individuals? If this is the right way to do it, find people on the ground who are doing good. I think it's hard for people to know, okay, then how do you get the money to them? How do you find the people who are doing good? Especially when you consider that often so many times bad actors get a hold of foreign aid, whether that's a government or people behaving poorly who who have some type of influence in the region. How do you connect with the people who want to do good? Well, um, that's a great question, and it's a and it's a real challenge, and that's one of the uh, things that, that that our organization has identified as as um, a value add that we can provide. We we have a robust team that is um, constantly spending time getting to know, reaching out, um, uh, in, inviting people to our events and to our training, so that we can uh, learn who's trustworthy, who's the real deal, who's um, uh, really uh, uh, um, be, being innovative and holding themselves to account. And unfortunately, uh, if you step back into the broader NGO foreign aid world, uh, there's a real culture of opportunism um, and, you know, tell me what I need to say to, to, you know, to get funded and I'll say it, you know, that kind of thing. And so what, what our job is at Atlas Network through both our grant making and the training programs that, that we do, is to really uh, develop a, a sophisticated understanding of who uh, is out there doing this for the right reasons, trying to make the world a better place, and, and has a, uh, a deep understanding of economic freedom and its importance in society. So are you suggesting then that America should not give out any foreign aid, that that should be eliminated altogether? What's your perspective on that? Well, um, I'll put it this way. I don't think uh, discontinuing foreign aid would be would create some sort of a crisis. We recently this year had a political um, um, uh, drama over threats to rescind unspent foreign aid funds. And of course, the uh, the aid organizations that depend on that money um, uh, had, you know, were facing existential crisis <laughs> uh, at that. And my message to them is, um, why are you pinning your 
uh, ability to do good in the world on political benefactors. Uh, you, you ought to transition to a diversified voluntary funding model uh, where uh, you aren't dependent on politicians uh, for, for your resources to, to do what you think is so important. But I will say that our focus at Atlas Network is on um, expanding what we're doing as an alternative. And that's, and that, that's really what's most important and um, uh, making sure that uh, all of the great projects that we learn about around the world that uh, promise to remove barriers for people living in very modest circumstances that that those those organizations are are funded and able to achieve these kinds of things. There's a, a another great example, if I may, where um, that sort of highlights how important it is to get uh, the local vision driving these projects. We have a partner in Sri Lanka, Advocata Institute, who, um, among other things, identified that one of the reasons that um, participation in school and the workforce among girls and and women was was lagging in their country was um, an absurd number of artificial uh, costs imposed on sanitary napkins um, that made it such that very few uh, women and girls were able uh, to afford uh, what what they needed in order to um, take care of themselves and be able to continue to uh, attend school regularly and attend work reg- regularly. Um, they did a, a, a campaign in the country to point this out. Not um, the, they, it was over a hundred percent increase on the cost as a, as a consequence of various taxes and tariffs. They've succeeded so far in eliminating one of those tariffs of roughly about 30% of, of the artificial cost has, has been removed, but they're fighting on, and trying to re- remove the remaining 60%. And, um, and you, you can imagine what kind of impact that can have uh, when you, you realize all the little ways that add up that bad government policy holds people back in poor places. And just kind of rounding out the conversation, we started up top, you you were talking about the situation, the controversy surrounding um, President Trump and the Ukrainian president. You talked about the politics, kind of leaving that specific issue aside, but thinking about this as a whole, do you find whether it's from the United States using foreign aid as leverage, um, which plenty of past presidents have done, and also the politics that are played by the other countries. Do politics play a big role in foreign aid? Obviously, the method that you're talking about does it in a different way. It does development differently. But do you find that politics are often a big role? Uh, absolutely. So if you think uh, in you know, the two categories are donor countries and recipient countries. And um, in recipient countries, uh, they've, they, you know, public choice theory, you know, uh, some, someone in government isn't immune to incentives uh, just because they're in government. Um, and you see lots of, um, in fact, it's sort of considered business as usual that there's going to be some uh, set of, of basically corrupt practices in terms of conditions put on. Yes, we, we will accept this funding, uh, but you have to use our airplanes and you have to um, you know, make these kinds of, of payments. And um, there's a paper by Nathan Nunn out of, out of Harvard where um, he tracks that not only uh, are, is, is there some high expectation of 30, 50, uh, 50% even of, 
of uh, of, of aid dollars uh, being siphoned off. But he's even identified cases where 100% of the funds were siphoned off and not uh, able to land on in in their specific areas. And look, the the other important issue that that comes up, and um, is what 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 are the implications for the evolution of these local democracies when foreign our foreign government is uh, creating a completely different set of incentives for local politicians to pay attention to? It's you know, it, it, it becomes you, you be, they by nature are less sensitized to what their people want and are paying more attention to what they need to do to get something from us. And this gets to another uh, it, it issue that I'll, I'll you know, um, I think is worth throwing in here right here at the end is um, uh, I recently attended uh, earlier this this fall in a, um, an event at the, at the Center for Global Development that was hosted by um, an organization called Black Women in Development. And, and and I went to observe and and learn and I and I learned quite a lot, which was they are focusing on um, um, how they who have a lot of experience going around the world supporting aid projects. These are very experienced pro, uh, pro professional women in the aid industry, starting to ask the question: What does it mean to get consent from the people that we're trying to serve? And they gave examples of. Uh, responding to earthquake in Haiti and that the actual operations on the ground were, you know, um, a bunch of white educated people behind closed doors making decisions on behalf of Haitians who are kept out of the process. And so this really gets to some fundamental, not, not only questions of efficacy, but questions of, 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 of morality and ethics. Um, we believe in democracy and I don't believe that we should be inadvertently purchasing away democratic institutions um, uh, from from other countries because we run roughshod with our good intentions. And just kind of to to rent, to finish up on that, I think there's also this other side where people are incentivized to give when they know exactly what they're giving to and know that it could be of help. I think when we realize our tax money is is going to, you know, obviously the United States, the United States is going to determine how to use that money. Where people themselves are disconnected from the people they're helping. I even think about when there was Hurricane Katrina. It was often just the local community. Uh, it was churches who went out there and, and helped. And it was the local community that really helped to build and people coming in from other places. So I think that there's also this aspect where people want to help people. And when government's in the middle, it takes away that human connection that often leads to, to better outcomes. So I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing, the work that Atlas is doing. Do you get his new book? Matt Warner's new book is called Poverty and Freedom Case Studies on Global Economic Development. It's a good read, has lots of great stories. But Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us. Before you go, I wanted to let you know of a great podcast you should subscribe to in addition to She Thinks. It's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning, or as we call them, problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture, 
culture to policy and politics by searching for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.